to Restaurant Inc., the Business of Food podcast. Each episode, our hosts discuss the important and exciting aspects of the food service industry and what you need to know to be successful in this business. From ways to build customer traffic, increase profits, re-engineer your menu, and so much more. What are the hot new items and trends in food service? We'll discuss these and more each episode. If you are in the food service business and you want to see more growth, more customers, and more profits, our expert hosts and their guests will take you there. And now here's your host, Adasha Townsend, Managing Editor of Restaurant Inc. Magazine. Paul Fehrbach may be a Chicago-based chef, but he's Southern at heart. Big Jones, his revered award-winning restaurant, cranks out some of the best fried chicken, skillet cornbread, and shrimp and grits this side of the Mason-Dixon line. Chef Farabach shares his recipe for balancing a healthy lifestyle with indulgent Southern cuisine. How's it going? Good. So, Chef, I just I just have to ask you: Did you grow up cooking this soulful Southern cuisine that you're so famous for now? I didn't. Um, <laughs> it was some stuff like it, I guess. Okay. Um, you know, growing up in in the in the country in southern Indiana, which is kind of part of greater Appalachia. It's very southern culturally. Mm -hmm. um, we did, fried chicken was a very important, um, like, uh, it was a very important dish to us, to us culturally. Like, mm -hmm. that was what you would have at wedding celebrations, at your great aunt's 80th Jubilee. If you hadn't been to one of those events in a while, you might have it for Sunday dinner. It, okay. just, it just wasn't an everyday food, but, um, I definitely was, was wanted to learn and did learn to make fried chicken very early. I learned to make biscuits very early. Where did you get the recipe for the fried chicken at Big Jones? This is, I have to admit, this is the best fried chicken I've ever had. Oh, thanks. I kid you not. Um, well, I I've had this dredge is something that I just developed a long, long time ago. And um, there's, actually, there's a, a little bit of a funny story in my cookbook about um, one time when I was going to make pork chops or I decided I was going to make pork chops and my mom if she had been in the kitchen or in the room she was in downstairs doing laundry she would have like she would have absolutely um killed me if I if she knew that I was like gonna because I was like seven at, at the time that I was gonna like get to the stove by myself okay and I got these pork chops out of the out of the refrigerator and I was gonna make the pork chops, and I thought that cinnamon and cloves would be really good spices hmm. for 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 these pork chops. The problem was that I, you know, I, I had seen mom, you know, dredge and then you know put the lard in the skillet. You take mm -hmm. some of the coffee can grease to season that, mm -hmm. and then you you bread the pork chops and you put them. In. I, I'd seen this many times because I was always watching in the kitchen and. The, the what happened was I sort of just opened the top of the can of cloves and just dumped it oh. on the pork chops, <laughs> and the same thing with the chicken or okay. with the uh, with the cinnamon. And uh, so I mean they were absolutely they were ruined. Uh, oh. And <laughs> mom did as soon as as soon as that smell started to waft through the house, she came upstairs and I I did get it at at that time because I wasn't allowed to be at the stove by myself. Oh. But um, that was like my first grand culinary experiment. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I had already had this sense, and I, I don't know where I got this sense of flavor. I always had this sense about um, touching all the different parts of your tongue. Mm. Um, even when you make dessert, like most of my desserts will have cayenne pepper or black pepper in them. Mm. Um, at, at an imperceptible level, but even if you don't taste, oh, that's spicy, that, that capsaicin that's in that cayenne pepper 
even if it's only a little bit, it's still going to tickle that part of your tongue okay. that nothing else will. And it makes everything more exciting when you hit it. So I had the sense that you want the sweet spices, you want the, you want the bitter herbs, and you want you know, your pepper and all of that in there. And um, I want to say that I was at Sh it was in my early days at Shuba's that I sort of settled on the, the, the current recipe. I don't remember where wow. I got I don't I don't remember where I got the idea to put cornmeal in it. I, I do know that I always I was when we went to KFC as we got older and you know fast food culture sort of started to take over our little town too and you know by the time I was in high school KFC would be an occasional thing and I was always always wanted extra crispy. Okay. And you're so, probably fascinated with all the different flavors in the chicken. Yeah, exactly. Probably and, try to figure out where all those spices were. Yeah, and they had that famous <laughs> famous jingle spices. about mm -hmm. eleven herbs and spices and I think that our fried chicken has ten maybe. Okay. Um and but the cornmeal was sort of my way of saying like I want to put some some real crunch in this. But it turns out that that also brings cornmeal gives a different like sort of toasty flavor when mm. it browns than wheat does. Wheat gives a certain toasty flavor, but cornmeal when it toasts is a different toasty flavor. So that sort of adds another layer of flavor as well. But there's a, you know, a tiny bit, you don't want to taste clove in your fried chicken. You don't want to taste a nutmeg in your fried chicken, but you want those sweet spices there to just kind of, I mean, you do taste them, but they're sort of in the blend in the background, okay. um, sort of as, as supporting actors. And, you know, the main, the main flavors that I go for are black. My mom was salt and pepper. And uh, and grandma was salt and pepper. So I grew up cooking simple country food, um, but it was a little bit different. You know, so there was fried chicken. There was there was there was biscuits. You know, we didn't really do cornbread. Mm -hmm. um, if there if we did or if anyone around us did, it, it always had sugar in it. It was nothing so, like southern cornbread. Yeah, where did you learn that recipe for your skillet cornbread? Um, we developed that in the first year I was at at big jones and we weren't doing cornbread at the time and a lot of people were sort of outraged by that <laughs> by that fact and we were making these little cornmeal crackers though that we would serve with pepper jelly as sort of like uh the, the bread service when you would sit down and okay. we'd sort of decided that that was too number one too labor intensive and number two um it was it was causing a little bit of trouble with some people i guess who did you know they didn't want the jelly or or, or this or that um they thought the jelly was spicy um, and plus we still had people always asking us for cornbread. So we decided to do cornbread for a bread service. And, um, I wanted to do a real Southern style cornbread, uh, which is to say, um, no wheat flour in it. And some people would say no sugar, like, especially in like in South Carolina, if you put sugar in your cornbread, you have to call it cake. Mm -hmm. Um, and that sounds accurate. Yeah. So. I had got I had used a a, a corn a cornbread recipe from Peter Reinhardt's book, The Bread Baker's Apprentice, which was like ninety eight or ninety nine probably, and it won the Beard Award for best cookbook or something that year. Absolutely phenomenal book, but he has a cornbread recipe in there that's fantastic. It does have wheat flour in it, um, but it's a very high egg cornbread like there's a lot of egg in it and a lot, a lot of, of buttermilk so it's almost a custardy sort of okay. texture well i didn't want to use wheat flour and we sort of tested it with cornmeal and you know cornmeal hydrates differently than wheat flour and i i didn't really like that texture and at the time we still weren't getting um you know we were getting cornmeal from three sisters garden 
locally, but it, it wasn't that it didn't have that same grist that Southern cornmeal will have that has like if you get cornmeal from Anson Mills or now uh, Andy Hazard custom grinds it for us and it has a, a lot more. Um, there's the you have the larger parts, but you also have sort of like it's a, a, almost a real fine. Mm-hmm. Like when you grind on a stone mill, there's um, a lot of different textures to the to the grain. So there's a, almost like cornstarch is part of the mix. It gets broken down a lot, and then you have your bigger pieces that add that texture. But um, you know, so we tested a few different cornmeals, and ultimately I decided to I, I decided to try using maseca because I I I'd, I'd, I'd read. What's that again? Maseca, masa flour. Okay. Because I'd, I'd been reading um, some old old cookbooks, and there's a recipe in, um, in a colonial-era cookbook. Well, it's the receipts of Harriet Pinckney Horry, and it's it's on the market from Charleston, and it's dated, mm-hmm. I think, 1770. Um, you really go back it's, with the it's history. Called a, it's called a colonial plantation cookbook. Okay. It, is how it's been sort of repackaged by Karen Hess, um, this fascinating... Uh, uh, compiler and author who sort of re- resuscitates a lot of these old these old receipt books, packages them and and gets them back out on the market. But there's a recipe in there for hominy bread, which is part cornmeal and part grits. And I thought, well, if I pray, if I play with the the maseca and the right hydration rate with the buttermilk and the eggs, then we'll come up then we'll get, come up with something. So it's actually like, and that hominy bread is actually like. They didn't call it spoon bread back then, but it's spoon bread now. You're listening to the Restaurant Inc. The Business of Food podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, are you running a restaurant, working in the food service industry, or just a lover of food? You need to check out rfsdelivers.com and see all the tools and insights available to you to help run a profitable food service operation. Want some new recipes to wow your customers? We have those too. Come see us at rfsdelivers.com and get the tools you need and the inspiration you crave. Running a restaurant comes with many challenges, and Reinhardt Food Service has the tools to help meet the needs of your food service operation. Check out rfsdelivers.com and find out how our team can help find more profits, build customer traffic, and create buzz around town for your growing restaurant. Get it right from us. And now back to our conversation. How much history goes into what you do? I mean, you just talked about cookbooks and you talk about back to the 1970s I mean the 1700s how much history plays into your menu I feel like you've really done your research a, a, here. a fair amount I mean especially when you're talking about things like cornbread um, or um, grits or anything that has to do with grits um, mm-hmm. those grits and gravy dishes like like shrimp and grits um, we don't do griots so much anymore but when we would do griots um, What's, what are griots? Griots are, it's a Creole thing where it's basically beef and gravy. Okay. And it, it's sort of a, a brunch thing. Um, you take round steak and pound it into squares and then you saute them and mm-hmm. cook them in some wine and it makes a gravy and then you serve that on grits. Um, How did you get into the history of Southern cuisine so deep as you have? I've just always been an, a history geek. It, it, it interests, it's always interested me and fascinated me. Um, in school, especially by high school, um, I I did you know well enough in math and you know geometry and you know I did well enough in English and all of that. I generally got good grades, but like um, by senior year, it's just like calculus. It's like who cares? But I would still <laughs> I'd, I'd have read the entire history textbook by the second week of class. I just liked it. It was fascinating. So, yeah. And um, 
I want to talk about how much of that history plays into your menu, cuisine-wise. Uh, it, it plays a lot, and but it's the the modern also plays a lot. Not modernist, but modern in terms of in terms of expressing the South. You know, we want to do a ra uh, express a range of dishes and. Um, Something like crawfish etouffee, we use the date 1930 in the in the title of the dish because there's a story about the origin of crawfish etouffee, which really goes back several hundred years. But the first sort of documented um, time it was called, or at least in lore documented that it was actually called crawfish etouffee, was at the Hebert Inn in uh, Brobridge, Louisiana, mm -hmm. in 1930. And these two sisters had this boarding house. And they were smothering crawfish, which smothering um, or making coubouillons and those types of treatments of seafood where you're just smothering them in butter and onions or mm. wine, you know, butter, wine, and onions. Mm -hmm. had you, the, you can find those receipts in, in Creole cooking going all the way back to the earliest days of, of settlements in Louisiana um, with, the, with the French Creoles. I mean, that was just how the French treated that kind of stuff. Right. And... Uh, so they were cooking, you know, the, the Heberts were Cajun, and uh, you're in Borough Bridge, and you're cooking crawfish in butter, wine, and onions. And as I understand it, you know, a guest walked into the kitchen and was like, "What? so what's for dinner tonight? And she said, and, you know, crawfish, you know, smothered crawfish. Like, that was what it meant in, in um that was how you say it in Acadian French okay. uh, dialect at the time. So then it became crawfish etouffee. But even then, people wouldn't... Creoles were different. They would sort of eat anything. That's like how French people are. <laughs> you know, give them the frogs, give them the snails, you know, take the crawfish. But most they white... They somehow make it taste really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, they sort of revel in that, you know, all of the different flavors and textures and everything you can get from the earth. Uh, um, only the French would have discovered truffles, for instance. Nobody else would have even <laughs> thought of looking underground. <laughs> Right. Um, so, Paul, I wanted to talk to you. I, let's discuss your healthier journey because your food is so rich at your restaurant and mm -hmm. so tempting, I'm sure, as far as your drinks, your drinks as well. Um, talk about how throughout, you know, like within the last year and a half, you've like taken a complete turn from how you were eating and how you've gotten healthier. Yeah, I, I haven't necessarily changed all that much what I eat, but I definitely changed how I eat and how, okay. and how much I eat. Um, and, you know, I think when you open a restaurant, um, you know, the stress and the hours, and I was sort of doing the same thing that everybody does, or at least most people do, and just sort of responding to the pressures. You know, when you're tired, you want to eat. When mm -hmm. you're, you know, and when you drink... Um, every day you're tired and, mm -hmm. and, and then you want to eat um, and mm. you're not getting your rest and then when you're tired you also don't want to exercise and even though we would you know we get a fair amount of you know walk around type of exercise in our business I had always have always had fitness as something that was important to me but when you own a restaurant it just kind of it just kind of went away mm -hmm. it, you, you kind of have to be on all the time as sort of the expectation that that the public has and that the food media has, uh, that you have to always have something new and novel for them, but at the same time, you still have to have whatever that hook is that, that first got them. 
um, I've had a lot of those dishes that become really hard to get rid of. I mean, I would never get rid of fried chicken. Mm -mm. But fried green tomatoes, for instance, it's just like, you know, I take them off of the menu in the winter when I can't get them locally. Mm -hmm. And people just lose their, they just, <laughs> you know, and then, and then they don't come back, you oh. know. And chicken and dumplings is another thing that I would put it on the menu for winter. Um, and uh, people come in July and they're like, where's the chicken and dumplings? Mm. And I'm like, you know, come back in, come back in, in October fall. and November. And, um, and, and people don't, you know, they, they take that sort of stuff um, personally mm -hmm. in a way. It's like, they, like you don't want them to be your customer. Never mind that there's 30 other things on the menu. <laughs> a lot of time goes into every dish um, because we cook everything from raw, from raw ingredients. So um, managing a staff, you know, certainly these days um, everybody's familiar with the line cook shortage. Mm -hmm. But even just front of house customers or, or fr front of house employees are... It's harder to come by good ones, you know, dealing with all of those pressures. And it's just like, you know, can I get away? But more importantly, can I get enough rest tonight? Mm -hmm. At this point, I don't think I'll ever become, you know, ever be that chef again who just sort of lords over the kitchen and the restaurant all day long every day. We're a, we're a team and everybody has uh, a degree of, of ownership in the restaurant and everybody makes... Uh, a contribution at the level they're able to and mm -hmm. you know if it means i never get a michelin star you know who cares i don't I, i've never really cared about but that your stuff health is very right. very important yeah because if i'm not healthy then you know the restaurant is, is then i can't be at the restaurant or i can't do what the restaurant needs and i can't do what my team needs and you know then 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 nothing is any good so you know and right now, I think on a day-to-day -day basis, the restaurant operates better than it ever has. That is that is a great story. Congratulations Thank again! You. Like I said, you look fantastic. You look like you're you're getting a lot, a lot of rest, and you know your restaurant is still on top. Uh, I want to thank you again, Chef Paul, for coming to visit us on the Restaurant Inc. podcast. Thanks thank for you so having much. me. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Restaurant Inc. The Business of Food podcast a production of Reinhardt Food Service. If you're looking for more resources on how to get and stay profitable, or you're looking for the latest trends in food service, go to rfsdelivers.com or check out our Restaurant Inc. magazine. Are you looking for new recipes and inspiration? Check out the Dish magazine, also on rfsdelivers.com. Tune in next time for another edition of Restaurant Inc. The Business of Food podcast. Like, subscribe today.